This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to tell you how to protect your privacy, secure your financial information, and browse the internet like a boss. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak. Rich, what's going on, man? It is an early morning, man. The sun has not even come up on the farm. I am the only one rattling around. Even the dogs are still asleep, man. It's so early. Oh, that's cool, man. I'm up a little bit early, too, and uh, Kai Mando's still in bed. The dogs are all still asleep as well, so... Uh, early start to this day, man. What do, what do you got going on today? Anything? Oh my God, I've got all kinds of crap to do. I got I got to go to Lowe's and get some stuff and do a little bit of ATP AF home improvement type stuff. So yeah, that's a, a full day ahead, man. What about you? That's cool, man. Uh, I'm gonna go out as soon as we finish here. Do my vehicle PMCS. Uh, we're we are going to make some chili because we're having a little uh, get together, a little chili party, if you will, and it's a little bit different. It's not a cook-off, but everybody's expected to bring a quart of chili, and it all gets dumped in one big pot and stirred up together and heated up, and that's what we uh, that's what we serve. That sounds pretty rad. Uh, oddly enough, Lisa is making chili today as well, so it must be fall is in the air. Chili cook-offs have begun. Brother, yeah, and I know chili is a thing that everybody is really, really opinionated on and has a lot of thoughts on, but um, I, I'm convinced that we have the best chili recipe. Oh, well, when you get down here to Tennessee next, we'll have to have a cook-off because I believe that I have the best chili recipe that man has ever seen. Well, if it's white chili, let me just tell you, man, don't even come at me with that garbage. <laughs> no, it's not, but I do make some mean white chili. Ain't no such thing as white chili, man. Ah, you're fired. <laughs> you got chicken soup there, man. You got some spicy <laughs> chicken soup. Oh, you haven't had my white chili. <laughs> oh, that's right, man. That's right. Uh, uh, anything uh, anything noteworthy this week you want to talk about? No. Um, no, no, not at all, brother. Um, just kind of really looking forward to getting in the show. You know, this, this, is a, this is your field of expertise, and I'm just really along for the ride, and I'm going to try to ask some of the questions that maybe our listeners would have, because I am absolutely a neophyte when it comes to what we're going to discuss today, brother. All right, man. Well, uh, well, let's, well, first of all, before we jump into it, uh, what are you drinking this morning, man? I am drinking uh, Pete's coffee. I really like that. Um, they're espresso that you put in the espresso machines like I have. It's the Ristretto. Mm-hmm. Uh, very bold. It's their signature blend, 100% Arabica. You know, of course, in the coffee episode, we talked about what that means, but it's, um, I don't know, crushed spices, rich fruits, chocolate smoothness. It's all the things you would want in a real dark espresso pool. So I'm enjoying that. Ooh, that sounds good, man. That sounds real good. I'm, I'm having uh, something much more basic. I'm having some uh, coffee from Black Rifle Coffee Company. They're just black coffee. They're JB blend. And uh, it's a medium roast. It's got a pretty decently bold flavor and... Uh, 
I, you know, I've had some of their coffee that I've not been absolutely in love with, and some of it that I've liked quite a bit. And this one's, uh, this one suits my palate pretty well. I would really, uh, I would love to know. I'll have to write that down because I've had almost no success with them. And for the record, I absolutely love those guys. I love what they're doing in the community. I really respect them. I listen to their show. But I have had no luck with a, with getting a good cup of coffee from their products, so um, which is disheartening, man, because you can recognize and identify with a brand and really love the culture that that brand is creating, but yet the product sometimes can fall flat, which is which is interesting. Well, I, I'll tell you, man, I, they sent me a bag of coffee and a coffee mug and maybe, maybe something else. I was reviewing their AK-47 blend on Revolver Guy, and man, that was a phenomenal bag of coffee. I I, I enjoyed that to no end, and ordered uh, several more of their um, several more of their bags of coffee. And Kai got a few, a, a couple of different free bags of coffee through her work from them. And I'll be honest, man, they like none of them, none of those blew my skirt up or were all that great. But uh, this uh, this just black blend is. It's it's pretty good, man. I, I don't uh, I don't have anything to complain about with it. Well, what bothers me and <clears throat> is like Pete's coffee. <clears throat> I don't even think they allow firearms to be carried into their actual coffee shops, and they're liberal AF, and and that's fine. I have a lot of liberal liberal tendencies, but you know, I'm like, I, <laughs> it seems strange, but the these uh, liberal coffee shops tend to have the best dark brews. And I really expected something like Black Rifle Coffee to produce a really rich, dark cup of coffee. And I I don't know, man. I've not not had it yet. So I'm going to write that down. You said it's, what's it called again, Justin? Uh, just Black. Now, if you want a dark brew, that's probably not the one of theirs to, to go for. I think they have one called Beyond Black that's supposed to be really, really dark. Um, and And... Probably, I think probably a few more that are supposed to be dark. This uh, just black is more. I'm more of a medium roast uh, kind of guy. Yeah, and I'm, <clears throat> we probably should have went into that more in the in the, what the different roasts are. But maybe we need to get someone on that can really speak to that, the roast profiles and stuff. But yeah, the I will definitely try that because I had their. I forget the name of it. It was the one that was supposed to be the darkest they had, and it was like uh, iced tea. I sent it back. They sent me another bag, and, and it, I ended up throwing both of them out. They just, I don't know. Love you guys. Well, love, I'll, I'll be yeah. honest, man. I, I just pulled them up on Amazon. I just pulled this blend up on Amazon, and it's got three-star uh, reviews. And looking under it at Deathwish Coffee Company, of course, this is, this is a sponsored review, but Deathwish Coffee Company, uh, they've got several bags of coffee here with like 15,000 reviews coming in at like four and a half stars. Uh, you know, just by way of comparison, not you know, not throwing shade at uh, at, at Black Rifle Coffee Company, but uh, and and also I don't have a problem with this blend, but I don't think it's going to be for you, man. No, and uh, and like I said, it's something that uh, I support their brand. I love what they're doing, and you know, I've I've got a T-shirt or two of theirs, and love what they're doing. Give them a high five anytime I see them, but I maybe I'm missing something. But anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, liberal places where you can't bring uh, firearms in, um, have you ever been to uh, have you ever been to the Sturm Ruger Manufacturing Facility in Prescott, Arizona, where they make uh, 
1911 handguns and all their semi-automatic handguns and stuff? No, sir. Huh? I was I was very very surprised to learn when we got out there that you could not bring a firearm in that facility either. Yeah, um, on some level, I'm not surprised. Introducing loaded firearms into a firearms manufacturing facility may be problematic, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I really see how, but it, but anyway. Um, I mean, if it, you know, it, when my firearm goes in my belt and I go to my office and I go teach all day, never comes out, it's, uh, I don't see how that would be a problem if I were operating a machine instead of operating a computer. But anyway, to, to each his own. Yeah, well, no, that's a good, dude, that's a great point. You know, there's a reason why if you go into these sporting goods stores, they got signs all over the place, big placards, do not pull your concealed carry firearm out because... There's a whole lot of people in this community um, that will do that. They'll go in there and let me try the trigger on that and let me try the trigger on mine and see if they're different. And they're whipping their loaded handgun out. So there's a maturity that comes with it that isn't apparent by just looking at somebody. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I know a couple of guys have worked in gun shops and they said you would be amazed at the shenanigans you see when people come in. Uh, pull out their gun to show you, you know, show you what it is or show you what's wrong with it or whatever. And it's loaded and they're pointing and waving it all around the the store. And yeah, man, I, I'm. Yeah. 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 And for those reasons, you know, that that's probably why they have. Because, it's, again, it's like you got to put in those policies for the lowest common denominator. Unfortunately, a lot of other people get, you know, screwed like you and I. Yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was, uh, you know, I. Don't see a lot of Second Amendment people raising a big stink about that, but anyway, that's just that's just me. All right, brother. So what what do we where do we start on this? All right, so we're going to talk about basically what we're going to talk about is a virtual private network, a VPN, how that works, and you know I I got Kai set up with one of these uh, probably two months ago or more now, and I expected. I'll be honest, man, I kind of expected her to have some discomfort with it, her to have a little bit of problems with it. And, you know, maybe, to be honest, just for her to be like, screw this and turn it off. But uh, so Kai doesn't have a laptop. Uh, She has a mobile device, an iPhone. And every time she pulls that thing out, every time we're navigating with it, it's up on the dash, every time, whatever, I see she's got her VPN on. It, it's, it's just on, it's just in the background, and it's just happening. So this is, now I'll caveat that with, she's a very smart woman and very adaptable and very capable, so that might have a little bit to do with it. But this is not rocket science. It's re- like she's a, a brand new adopter. Most of the privacy and security related stuff that I talk about with her is the first time that she's ever heard about it. So um, this is well within the reach of the average individual. So first things first, uh, I, I think we should probably talk a little bit about how your internet traffic works and where it's vulnerable, uh, because understanding that's pretty important to understanding how it can be intercepted or used maliciously or used against you. I, I totally agree. And when we um, interviewed the folks that attended your course uh, at Warrior Week here in Tennessee, you know, I'm like, what, what did you think? He's like, man, I had no idea, you know, how vulnerable I was. I think, you know, I just jump on the Wi-Fi and go. And Justin 
open my eyes to the fact that I have these, you know, what do you call them, attack surfaces or, or something like that? Yeah. So, yeah, actually, that was, a, that was a great episode. I had to fly out to New York City for a couple of days last week, and uh, just me and my EDC bag, man, for a, for a couple-day trip up to the big city. And um, I, I listened to that episode en route, and uh, we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes, talking about your Warrior Week interviews from uh, from a bunch of your students there. I, I really enjoyed hearing that, man. So, yeah, let, let's talk about how this thing works. So, for internet, so to speak, to get from my computer to Amazon.com or ESPN.com or Pornhub.com, there's a number of steps that it has to take, right? So it has to leave my computer and get to some sort of router or some sort of access point. And generally, for almost for some overwhelming percentage of Americans, that's going to be through Wi-Fi, which is nothing more than a radio signal. So your computer has a little radio built into it that transmits these specially designed packets to your router where it receives them. That router transmits packets back to your computer where your computer receives them and then parses them into some human readable form on your screen. It basically gives you, puts these packets together to paint the picture of Amazon.com with the specific book you're looking at. You you with me so far? Actually, yeah, and I'm drawing a diagram as you're talking so that I don't miss anything. Well, uh, maybe you'll maybe you'll take a photograph of that diagram and we'll put that in the show notes or something. We'll we'll have some explanatory graphics in the show notes to help people wrap their head around this because it is kind of conceptual. So it goes from my computer to my wireless router just via via a radio signal. Um, Let's talk about that area and what the threats there are. So the the only thing, Rich, if I am on your Wi-Fi network or within range of it, if I can see your router, all those packets are just sent over the radio. There's nothing whatsoever stopping me from collecting those packets if I want to. Now, my computer won't collect them by default because it observes basically just an etiquette, basically just kind of a code of conduct of, hey, guys, be cool and only receive the stuff that is meant for you and just discard everybody everybody else's stuff. Because, again, we're just talking about a radio receiver here. It sees all these packets addressed to everybody. It's saying, okay, I'm only going to take the stuff that is addressed to Rich's computer, whatever that is. And it's looking for that IP address or what is it actually looking for? Well, so yeah, basically your computer and that router, when you connect to it, they establish that router assigns your computer a unique number and says, okay, I'm going to send all these packets to this unique number. And that, that is a private IP address. Um, That's generally not the IP address we're worried about protecting for now. We'll just say it's your, your internal, let's say your router is the phone number at the front desk of the company, and then all the different computers are on extensions to that number, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's a good analogy. Now, what about um, while we're in this intermediate stage, before we get any further down the train, we're talking about laptop to my router. I use an Ethernet cable. So is, is my laptop still broadcasting radio signal, signals, or is all that going through the cable to the router? Well, so no, if you're using an Ethernet cable, that's going through the cable. So you've reduced one major, major attack surface because the traffic that is going to your computer is going over that cable to your modem where it links up with your ISP. So it's never put in the air on that signal. So 
that's not impenetrable. Let's say you're in a hotel and you plug into the Ethernet at that hotel. If I'm in another room and I plug a certain device and run a couple of certain programs, I can get into that wired network and see what everybody's doing on that wired network. That's probably not a threat in your home because I would have to actually get inside your home and touch that wired network inside your home. So you've reduced a big uh, amount of attack surface there just by using a wired network. Okay, cool. But most people don't most people don't do that though, right? No, most people don't. Even I'm not doing that right right this minute. I I try to do that, but I'm not doing it right now because of where I sit to record. Uh, I, I go on Wi-Fi to do that. So uh, when I'm on Wi-Fi, what that means is anybody in the apartment above me, the apartment below me, the apartment to the left, the right, the apartment across the hall, any of those people that could see my network could capture the packets that are coming to my computer right now. And that would include any internet stuff I have going on. Rich, that would include the packets that are making up this phone call that we're on right now. If they chose to put their computer in a state where it ignores that etiquette of Wi-Fi, it could collect all those packets. Uh, So where they could potentially look at what's in them and see our conversation, see what I'm doing on the internet, see like what I'm looking at on, you know, whatever sketchy website or, or whatever else. Now we, for our phone call, that's encrypted. So we don't really have to worry about that, but if you're on Wi-Fi, it is a possibility that anybody within that range of that Wi-Fi with a laptop could tell their radio, their Wi-Fi, uh, their Wi-Fi card in their computer to disregard that etiquette and collect everything that everybody on that network is doing. And now um, you mentioned that it's encrypted, and for the listener, uh, it's in it's it's encrypted because we're using a certain uh, thing. You want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, man. So we're using a product called Wire Secure Messenger. Um, I, I can, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll post an article on the blog about this by the time this comes out. This is all that Kai and I use to communicate. And Wire, it, it's a free app. It supports uh, voice calls, video calls, group chat, group calls, group video calls. You can do file transfers. You can send GIFs. You can do all this cool stuff. It's available for all your devices, your Windows, Mac, Linux computers, your iPhones, your Android phones. If you want to log in just via a website, you can go to app.wire.com and log into your account and communicate. Uh, It's actually designed by the people who invented Skype, and it's just a much more secure alternative. Uh, All our communications are encrypted at the local device before they're transmitted, wire as a company their servers or any of that stuff doesn't have any access to what rich and i talk about or any of the pictures we share or the text messages we send or any of that stuff yeah a huge fan of wire and you got me turned on to it and now this is how you and i communicate so if 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 someone does penetrate this first layer of our i guess threat you know this first little threat uh thing uh, surface we have it's okay, right? Because it's encrypted. They're not gonna. They're just gonna hear a bunch of gibberish. Yeah, that that part is. They're well. Really, what they're gonna get is a bunch of packets. They're gonna try to reconstruct those, and it's not gonna be in any kind of sensical form at all that they can that they can reconstruct back to anything usable whatsoever. So th- that is that is absolutely one layer is encrypting individual transactions you do on the internet and. You know, the problem with this is the only thing I'm protecting with wire is the stuff I actually do through wire, the text messages I send to you, the dirty pictures I send to Kai or the 
you know, what, whatever it may be, that, that's all I'm protecting. There's still a lot of other stuff happening on my computer that is not being protected by that. So, but I do believe in, in a system of building redundancy in because something could be wrong with, something's probably wrong with wire that nobody's discovered yet. Um, something's probably wrong with every encrypted service, every encrypted protocol, and everything else. So I want to build a defense in depth. And before we go much further, it, probably for the listener that is that, that is really kind of new to all this stuff, what would you say to them when they go, hey, Justin, I don't know that I need a VPN because, you know, I don't really do anything. I'm, I'm not sending dirty pictures. I'm not going on Pornhub. I'm fine with just not having a VPN and not having that level of protection. Would you say anything to that listener? Yeah, it's it, this is absolutely not about having anything to hide. It's about having something to protect. And every single one of us has something we want to protect, even if it's just down to something as simple as protecting your credit card number. When you pass that over the internet, over Wi-Fi, you're passing it as a radio signal that anyone can potentially intercept and use. Now, we have some other protection measures in place by law that protect credit card numbers, but those systems are not impenetrable. And, and in fact, they get penetrated all the freaking time. So when you're going to irs.gov to, uh, to do tax information and you're submitting your name and your social security number and your home address and your date of birth, basically all the information that's necessary to take credit out in your name, yeah, you don't want that. You, you don't want to hide that maybe, but you definitely want to protect it. Yeah, that's a great point. I just want to make sure we understand that because, you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't, my emails are just, anybody could read them. Oh, really? Well, sure. Give me your, uh, you know, your email, username and password, and let me peruse through there and see if there's nothing you want, want shared with anybody because there's a lot of stuff on there that you probably want to protect and a VPN is a great way to do it. So what do we do? What's, what's next? Yeah. On that point, you and I both listened to a podcast a few months ago called Breach. It's only four episodes, I think, or maybe five, and they're about an hour, hour and a half long. And they talk about the Yahoo breach. And in case the listener doesn't know, every single Yahoo account was breached once over a billion users, and then half of them were breached again. That's 500 million users. And that was done by a nation, like one of the, at least one of those was done by a nation actor. And Think about the information that's in even your old Yahoo account, your ex-girlfriends, your uh, basically you get emails from every single place you've ever purchased something, every place you've ever signed up for a newsletter. It contains a list of every single one of your interests, all like all your uh, your banks, your medical providers all send emails to that Yahoo account and yeah, man, I, Breach really does a good job where I fail of explaining why that is such a big freaking deal and why you should worry about that and, and be concerned about it and protect that stuff. Yeah, that that podcast was really eye-opening for me as someone that's not in the, the community that you're in. you got to look at what this means to somebody with ill intent, not what it means to you, not whether it's emotionally sensitive for you to protect it or not. Yeah, agreed. So... That definitely, I would recommend that they go back and listen to that just for a primer on why you want to care about this kind of stuff. So what's next, man? Yeah, we'll make sure a link to that is in the show notes at acrossthepeak.com. Okay, so so far, let's just recap here real, 
really quickly, Rich. So we've talked about the the Wi-Fi gap between your computer and your access point. So basically, from my computer to my access point, it's a radio. Anybody can grab those packets if they want to. And it doesn't, it's not super technologically demanding to actually do that. Our best defense is to encrypt those, and we'll talk about how to do that in a moment. So the next thing is the router itself. At my house, I own the router that my traffic goes through. I know what's being done on that router. I install custom firmware, and I look at the logs and all this other stuff. But most people, or many people, probably rent their router from their internet service provider. And you pay an additional 12 bucks a month or whatever it is, and your ISP gives you a router that sits in your house. They have access to everything that passes through that router. Make no mistake about it. They have access to call into that router. They can change passwords on you. They can do anything they want with that router because it belongs to them. It's their property. Um, If we take the computer outside of the home and we're in a hotel, we're using Hilton's router. Hilton can capture every single packet that transits through that router because we're making a decision by using that Wi-Fi to borrow Hilton's hardware. So by default, all our traffic is going through that and they can access it if they want or Starbucks or, you know, whatever public Wi-Fi you happen to be using. Also, one disadvantage we have of public Wi-Fi instead of our home Wi-Fi is on our home Wi-Fi, most people probably password protect that Wi-Fi, which gives them a little bit of a, a layer of security right off the bat. If you're using Hilton Wi-Fi or Starbucks Wi-Fi, you don't have that encryption. Everything you're sending is completely plain text. So we've got a couple different layers there. We've got that air gap, and then we've got on the router itself, on that manufacturer's hardware Whoever happens to own that can get access to every single thing we push through there. Yeah, no, that is that's unbelievable, man. Uh, okay, so uh, so I so I get it. You know the that that router is incredibly important, and and I'll look into maybe getting one set up here at home because that that's an attack service I hadn't really thought about. I guess the next thing is going out to the internet service provider. Our traffic leaves our house. It goes to our ISP, Cox, Time Warner, Charter. Uh, there's there's a handful of these, Verizon, Xfinity, whatnot. It goes out to them. And last October, about a year ago, a law was passed that said internet service providers can inspect the packets of every single customer's traffic. They can build information up about those customers. And the example I always like to use, there's one that works awesome for people that are politically on the right, and there's one that works awesome for people that are politically on the left. So think about this. Your internet service provider, if you're a right-leaning person, knows if you're a gun owner. And they keep a list of that because, man, that is incredibly valuable to them because they sell that information to places like the NRA that want to advertise to you to get you to give them money. So just think about that. And if, if that bo- if that doesn't bother you, it, maybe it should a little bit. If you're a person that's concerned about you know the government creating a gun registry, the way publicly available information works, it's classified under uh, DOD 5240 as any information that can be purchased. So they could purchase that from the ISP. If you're politically left-leaning, consider this. Your ISP knows if you've researched abortion providers. It knows if you've uh, researched marijuana dispensaries or or things of that nature. Uh, And it's definitely keeping a list of that because it wants to sell you products. It wants to push advertisements to you that are politically in your wheelhouse. The, The more we know about a person, the more we can tailor those advertisements to that person, probably have a higher chance of success 
at that person spending some money that they wouldn't have otherwise spent. So uh, I personally care very, very deeply about protecting my traffic from the internet service provider because they are collecting all that. They're putting me into categories and silos based on what I do on the internet, and they're selling that to people, potentially including the government. Yeah, that's that law that, that says um, anything that's sellable, that, that seems like a weird way to word that, but I don't know. I, I'm not making the argument that they are collecting on Americans and there's some secret thing that they're, you know, collecting on all Americans. But that capability is there. It does exist. And one thing that we have seen repeatedly is that no president ever gives power back. We gave President Bush Patriot Act powers, and guess who that power transferred over to? It transferred over to President Obama. And maybe you like President Obama, but then it transferred over to President Trump. And next time it's going to transfer over to somebody that's probably even more left-leaning than President Obama was. So we give this power to the president that we have now, and it goes to every president after that, and we give more and more power, and that's the thing I could definitely imagine happening. Well, you make a great point there, and I want to make sure that everybody understands that. I know, uh, president Obama, if you consider him left-leaning, he didn't come in and go, you know what, this Patriot Act is an overreach. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut that down. He didn't give that back. It's, it's still alive and well. No president in American history has ever given presidential power back, but all of them has, have asked for expanded power. Hmm. Okay, so what's next? Okay, so we talked about the air gap where we're transmitting the signals. We talked about the router itself, which is actually a threat if it doesn't belong to us. And we've talked about the Internet service provider. The, and that's, that's pretty much where we get the security that a VPN provides. And I'll talk about how it does that. I'll, I'll kind of step through how exactly to do this. But that's where we get some of the security that a VPN actually provides and gives us. Now, we also... Now I was going to say, someone mentioned, said that the VPN was like an encrypted tunnel or something like that. Is that an accurate way to think about this or not necessarily? It's not a bad way to think about it, especially if you're new to thinking about these things and don't understand all the technical details of how they work. Uh, in my five-day classes, when I give a five-day training, I try to get away from that terminology because I have much more time to break down how this works and actually show students what this looks like, what the packets look like, and all that stuff. But for our purposes, that's a pretty good analogy. So what a VPN is going to do is it's going to, let's let's use that terminology, it's going to create a tunnel to that VPN provider. Now, most VPN providers that you sign up for, you're, you're actually getting two things from that provider. You, one, you're paying for a subscription, you're paying for a service. So you'll have to go to that provider's website or download their app through the app store and pay for it there. But You'll pay for a a subscription that allows you to access their servers and use their bandwidth. So the the, uh, VPN that I use is called Private Internet Access, and they have servers in 28 different countries. They have servers all over the United States, California, Chicago, Denver, Houston, Las Vegas, Seattle, Silicon Valley, Texas, Washington, D.C., and U.S. West. And... In addition to a few more I have in my favorites here, U.S. Florida, U.S. East, U.S. Atlanta, U.S. New York City. And basically what I can do is anytime is say, I want to connect to the server that that is in Florida. And I connect to that server, and basically my traffic is encrypted from the time it leaves my computer all the way to their service in Florida. So 
I pay for that privilege. I pay for being able to access those servers and use their bandwidth. Does that make sense? Yep, so far. Okay, so what that gives me is it means anybody that can monitor my traffic between my computer and that server in Florida, all they're going to see is encrypted packets. And that's how a VPN works. It, It adds a layer of encryption over everything you do on the internet. So that's where we get that tunnel analogy. Basically, everything I send through that Wi-Fi radio signal, through that router, out to the internet service provider is cryptographically opaque. You could you can still intercept those packets, but you can't do anything with them because of the encryption that's over top of them. So I'm assuming I must download something from private internet access onto my computer that will that runs some sort of encryption protocols or something to allow it those radio signals to leave my laptop and go to one of their servers somewhere else. Yep. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's two things you need here. You need to pay for that subscription. You need to create an account and pay for your subscription service. And the second thing you need to do is you need to download and install their some type of application on your device. Now, full disclosure, we do have an affiliate relationship with private internet access, but I... And I have no qualms whatsoever about admitting that. If you want to use another VPN, by all means, knock yourself out. But I will tell the listener, this is what I've used personally for years. This is a VPN that I've had an affiliate relationship with for years on my on my security blog, operational-security.com. I've used PIA for years for several reasons. Uh, first of all, they ha- this application that Rich is talking about that you're going to ha- have to download, they have it for every operating system you could possibly want to use, Windows, Mac, Linux, iOS, Android. It's a really simple, easy-to-use app. Um, they off- You can have up to five devices connected at any given time, meaning I can have my two computers with private internet access installed on them, my phone with it installed on there, and Kai's phone. And we can have all four of those things connected at the exact same time. There's no limit on bandwidth. It costs a little bit of money. It's $40 a year. But in my opinion, it is well worth it. It's extremely well supported. It's a very, very good VPN. So go ahead. No, I was going to say, by you saying this is a service that we have to pay for, I think those that are new to the this community probably need to understand that you either pay for the product or you are the product. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly, man. And that is a kind of almost an overused expression in the privacy and security community. If you're not the if you're not paying for a service, you're not the customer, you're the product. And here's why that is there are free VPNs out there. The trouble is it costs a lot of money to run a VPN. So Private internet access has 3,300 servers in all these various locations, and they have to pay for those servers. They have to pay for bandwidth to all those servers. They have to pay people to write applications for all these different operating systems. They have to pay people to maintain their website and to do customer service and to write their backend code and all this other stuff. That's a very, very costly proposition. If a service is purporting to give you that for free, they have to be making money somehow. And probably how they're doing that is, well, we need to jump back to how this tunnel works really quickly. So when I connect to Florida, my traffic goes, is encrypted on my computer, it leaves my computer, and it lands in Florida on that private internet access server. 
they remove that outer layer of encryption and say, hey, Amazon.com, hey, ESPN.com, hey, CNN.com, here is this traffic. And instead of saying this is from Justin, they say this is from us. So return this back to the server. So my traffic goes to CNN, requests whatever article I want to look at. CNN retrieves it and sends that back to the VPN provider, and then they encrypt it and send it back to me. So the, the point being in that is that VPN provider has access to the unencrypted packet contents, which means they see every single website I go to. They see how long I stay there. They see how much bandwidth I use. And if that website doesn't have some sort of additional encryption on it, it doesn't have the little green padlock up in the address bar, they see exactly what I do on that website. So they have tremendous access and placement. If they're doing this for free, the way they are doing that is they are collecting all that and they're selling it to someone. And there are countless bad examples of bad actors in the VPN world. There's a VPN called Onavo Protect, O-N-A-V-O, and it's owned by Facebook. And Facebook puts this in people's feeds and says, hey, you should protect yourself with this VPN. What they don't disclose is that VPN is owned by Facebook. It just routes directly to a Facebook server. So if you throw that on, it protects all the traffic that leaves your phone, but only as far as a Facebook server, where now not only do they get access to what you're doing in the Facebook app, they get access to every internet-connected process that's running on your phone, and they can add that to their dossier of you. Yeah, that I think that's a, a really important distinction so that they understand uh, now, these people that do monetize your VPN traffic, the ones that are free, I'm sure they're saying that they're anonymizing it. They're stripping it of all the uh, personal identifiable information and things of that nature. But no, they are definitely not saying Oh, they're that. not? They're not even anonymizing? No, especially the Facebook-owned one. No, they like they are very, very hinky about uh, hiding the fact that that's owned by Facebook. They don't advertise that or they don't promote that, but they make no promise whatsoever that your information will be anonymized or protected in any way. Holy cow. No, I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, yeah, that you get into some really sketchy territory here when you start talking about free services like this. Yeah, so I, I'm all about paying a little bit of money for a service that uh, you know will not release my information. I, I dig that. Yeah. So, all right, so back to the virtual private network. So... Uh, <laughs> I like your I like that tunnel analogy, especially for understanding this at a really, really baseline level. But basically what that gives me is the ability to say, okay, I want this secure tunnel from my computer, from my phone, from my whatever, to Florida. So basically anyone on my local network, they might intercept my traffic. That's fine. It's all going to be encrypted. I don't really care. Anyone on that router that's collecting everything and looking at it, it's all encrypted. I don't really care. Anyone at the ISP, anyone at the next ISP that goes through, and this traffic will go through a chain of different ISPs until it finally gets to the desired endpoint server, Amazon or whomever, won't have access to it. Once it leaves that VPN provider, it's in a more typical format, but it's also exiting that VPN server along with the traffic from potentially hundreds of other people that are accessing that server. So it's kind of a, a needle in the haystack at that point. Okay, with you so far. Okay, so the other thing that this gives for us, so to the VPN server, it gives us security, it gives us encryption. Now, as I explained, when it gets to that server, they remove that additional layer of encryption so that packet can be read by Amazon.com. Amazon can see what I'm asking for and can return me the appropriate results. 
So we're not getting any encryption. We're not getting any security on that side of the VPN server. But what we are getting is a little bit of privacy because what Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, I don't know, pick your website, what they don't get is your actual IP address. And we haven't really talked about IP addresses yet. And this is probably a scary terminology to some people. But when I connect to, let's just say, Amazon.com, without a VPN, all these packets basically have a two line and a from line. And the two line is to amazon.com and the from line is my IP address. That IP address is assigned to me by my internet service provider. And it's basically just a return address for all the packets that I put out into the internet. It's kind of a necessary evil. The problem is uh, Amazon is able to say, yeah, this guy with this IP address, this is all the crap he buys online. and sell that if they wanted to. And Amazon's pretty good about not selling your data, not running a bunch of analytics, but almost no one else is. Facebook, for instance, they will absolutely collect your IP address. They'll geolocate that with the internet service provider, and they'll reach out to all these other websites and say, hey, this person with this IP address, give us everything. We'll we'll pay you to sell us all the information about all the browsing he's done on your website. So that's a really, really unique personal identifier that you constantly put out there. Again, some people may not care about that. Some people certainly will. But I do care deeply about protecting my home IP address because it's so unique to me. So basically, that's the two big things we get from a VPN. We get that security on the one side of the equation, and we get that privacy protecting our IP address on the other side of the equation. Okay. And I think we could probably almost do a show and that we're using terms like privacy and security, and I want to make sure that the listener doesn't think these things are synonymous in, in a virtual space. They're they're completely distinct topics. Absolutely, you're yeah, no question about that, uh, Rich. So, and I, a bank account is a good example of the difference between privacy and security. When I applied for my first home loan, I had to submit uh, bank statements from all my checking, savings, and credit accounts for three months. And I think at the time I had two savings accounts, a checking account, and a credit card. And basically, I started realizing if you run down through that list of my credit card, you can see where I stop for coffee every morning, where I get gas, where I buy groceries. From the amount I'm spending and the frequency that I'm buying groceries, you can probably tell how many people are in my household. You can probably tell some things about my lifestyle and that sort of thing. You can see all the restaurants that I eat dinner at, just a wealth of information. Losing that is a privacy concern because that that is has to do with my personal privacy and how much I want to protect that. Uh, alternatively, if I lost my username and password for my bank, that would be a security concern uh, that would impact my privacy because someone could still see that same information. But the security concern would come in because that username and password would allow them to transfer money, to grab my credit card number and start using that and that sort of thing. Does that make sense? It does. And a, and a VPN will protect both. Is that correct? Yes, to some in in one particular instance, and it's a big instance. And and you know we have some security shows planned. We've you know, I, Rich, I know you're a big fan of my 30 day security challenge, and we are going to run that on acrossthepeak.com early next year. Uh, we'll actually run those blog posts on here. But the reason I chose to do this as the first topic 
for a security and privacy-related show it basically boils down to this. It's a really, really simple, easy step that you can put into place. It's going to cost you 40 bucks a year. Really, really simple, easy step that you can put into place, but it has a massive, massive impact because we all use public Wi-Fi. Uh, we all uh, you know, connect to services where we exchange login credentials, usernames and passwords. We exchange credit card numbers and things that are a major potential security risk. Yeah, we're. I think in the 21st century, man, we're all whores to Wi-Fi, and I think this is this is one sort of prophylactics that uh, can protect you out there. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about some pitfalls with a VPN. Uh, first and foremost, it's going to make your traffic a little bit slower because. Before my traffic just goes out to the internet, it doesn't connect to the ISP right here in Portland, Oregon. It has to go all the way back to Florida, connect to that server, and then go out to Amazon. And then Amazon sends my traffic to Florida, and then it has to come all the way back to me. So it's a really, really long round-trip time. I can improve that a little bit. I could use the Seattle uh, VPN, private internet access server in Seattle, and that would improve my performance, but be prepared for a little bit of a performance hit. It's not as bad as you would think. It, 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 it's not like dial up. It doesn't take forever for a page to load, but that is a thing you should know about. Yeah. That might be a rub for some people that are used to clicking away and, you know, no lag time whatsoever. Honestly, it's, it's very, very minimal, man. Um, I mean, I stream YouTube videos. I, I, you know, you and I are doing this phone call, through a VPN right now. Okay, well that that's that's good to know because this I hear no lag in this. Yeah, it, it's not unbearable, man. It, it's it's very very minimal. Um, one other thing you should be aware of with a VPN is some services don't like VPNs, and and Google is one of them. If you, uh, especially for guys that I train to do internet research that are spending hours and hours a day googling stuff, Google will start Google will start to throw a bunch of roadblocks in your path, a bunch of captchas because it recognizes that you're coming from a VPN and trying to hide your presence. Another uh, potential thing is some services like uh, Netflix uh, don't like VPNs. They don't like proxies because what, what that would basically allow you to do is Amazon's restricted country by country, or Netflix is. Rich, I don't know if you've ever, uh, from the UK, tried to watch... Uh, tried to watch Netflix. I don't think I did. I was enamored by what they just show on the regular BBC over there. Yeah. One thing you'll notice if you travel overseas and log into your Netflix account is you're not going to have access to the same things. Uh, so what if, what is potentially possible with a VPN is you can connect to a U.S. server and Netflix will say, okay, he's in the U.S. He can look at his normal U.S. content. Uh, so networks, uh, Netflix tries to block VPNs. I'll tell you, though, it's it's not that bad. I always have a VPN on my computer, and we are always able to watch Netflix. Uh, sometimes after an episode of a show ends, it will say proxy detected. Please turn off your VPN or proxy or whatever. And basically all I do is change the server, refresh the page, and we're off to the races again. So it's uh, it's not that big of a, an issue usually. Okay. Where, where do we go now? So... Uh, we've we've uh, used private internet access as a good example, and and again, man, there's a reason. I and and this is this is not just me, not just my bias. This is an amazing VPN. I I teach this to every single student that passes through my class. That's hundreds of students a year, and 
I don't want to end there, though. I don't want the listener to just say, well, this is what Justin said, so this is what I'm going to go with. I would say do your own research, and there's some things you should look for very, very carefully with a virtual private network. And the first and foremost of those is, are they actually providing any encryption at all? One thing, uh, uh, a magazine called Ars Technica did a review of over 300 VPN services found in the Google Play Store. And what they found is almost one in five of those didn't provide any encryption at all. So you thought you were getting that security on that Wi-Fi network, protection from the ISP and all that. And really, you weren't getting anything. And, And man, this is really, really sketchy behavior. I guarantee you all those services were just to collect people's data. That that is real, real questionable behavior but just something to be aware of you need to make sure it's providing you some actual security on that uh, well on that Another, no, on that note yeah. this is something that you and I talked about probably a year ago when we when I first you know noticed that there was that you, you explained there was this thing called the VPN and I started doing your 30 day challenge and I want to make sure that it's clear to the listener don't think you're going to get a VPN and crawl down this encrypted tunnel to overuse that metaphor right now but and and be uh clear from everything this will not survive a subpoena will it what this will not survive is active surveillance so if the government says hey we're on to justin and they contact private internet access and say hey we want to monitor this user number that won't protect me from that but this leads me nicely into the next thing you're going to talk about which is a vpn provider's logging policy and some vpns if they're not transparent about this you should, you should continue to look elsewhere. But some VPNs will maintain very detailed logs of exactly what you do on their service. They'll retain those logs for, uh, you know, 3, 10, 30, 60, 90 days. And what that means is if they get subpoenaed, they have all that information to turn over to, uh, to law enforcement, to whoever. That could be stolen by hackers. That could be stolen by hackers. It could be misused by rogue employees. All kinds of bad outcomes from retaining that data. So private internet access claims that they retain no logs at all. And this has been tested in court two times. Uh, Two times someone has been charged with a crime that happened on the internet. Two times someone from private internet access has had to testify and say, sorry, we don't have any logs to give you related to this user. We can tell you how much time is left on his or her account, but we can't tell you what they did while they had access to that account. In both of those cases, those crimes are solved through other ways, which I'm, I'm glad to report, but I'm glad that that has been tested in a public court of law in the United States twice <laughs> to give us some reassurance that private internet access is actually doing what they say they do and not retaining those logs. Yeah, and I have done as a Marine investigator, very little with the cyber stuff. You know, most of it was getting, um, having to, I'm not going to call it subpoena because it was basically just having the general uh, write a letter that said, you know, hand over to Chief Warrant Officer Brown these Marines' email traffic for the last eight months or whatever, and then I'd have to comb through all that stuff. But what you're doing out there in the cyberspaceman is unprotected, especially if you're, especially if you're using a dot mail account or something like that. I'm really loath to put anything on the internet in an email in a text message or whatever that I wouldn't want to read about in the in the newspaper at some point in the future because 
every single day I get this massive feed of all these data breaches that are happening, and they're happening every single day, man. They are, and um, I'll give you another example. Let's say you think that, well, I'm a upstanding guy. One of the things I had to do was because of the nature of my work, I would go on to some of these hate groups because we had to look at some Marines would have some questionable tattoos or people trying to become Marines would have tattoos on their body, and we need to decipher what these tattoos, there's there's what the Marine says it means or what the applicant says it means, and then there's what it may mean on some of these, uh, like the Southern Poverty Law Center or some of these other things. And so we would go to some, me and uh, maybe one other officer would go to some pretty sketchy websites to try to decode what some of these things would mean. Now, someone that saw that traffic could misinterpret, you know, what me and this other officer were doing, but that's why you know we we were the only ones in the uh, the uh, I don't know if it was the dot mill server land or however that worked, but that we were allowed to go to those sites. But it's just one of those things, man. Anything that you're doing out there, how could it be misinterpreted by somebody else? Because if there's a way to misinterpret it, I promise it can be done. Yeah, there's there's a pretty common quote that goes around. Let's give me five minutes with anybody's search history, and I'll find something incriminating on. And even if you are an upstanding individual, you're only upstanding in your own eyes. And that, that's one thing that kind of bugs me about uh, you know about a lot of people's ideas of freedom. It's your your a, a lot of people seem to have the idea that you're free to be exactly who you want to be as long as that conforms to my vision of what you should be, and you know you you again you might be upstanding in your own eyes because you go to a Baptist church and you volunteer at this place and you work a forty hour a week job, but again we get back into that thing of the next president, the next government, the government ten years from now. Uh, you know, might not agree with your exact take on religion or your exact take on, you know, how many abortion clinic bombings does it take before uh, the Baptist church is kind of under the spotlight? Uh, you're, you're only, and I'm not saying hide what you do, hide who you are, but, but uh, I'm using this as an example of just because you're upstanding, you're only really upstanding in your own eyes. Someone else could twist any of those things to be you know, to, to paint you in a bad light. Well, you're, you make a great point. You're only upstanding in your own eyes. And at this particular moment in time, you know, if you look back at, uh, there were times in America when we enslaved other Americans and those people didn't see any moral aversion to what they were doing. As a matter of fact, the fringe groups were the one that were calling for abolition. So I think those people, if they were transported in a time machine to today. They'd be like, oh, what I was doing was, was bad. So it's the same. You make a good point with uh, some of this stuff with the the churches that support some of the. And I don't think they support the bombings. Nobody would probably outwardly do that. But like you said, maybe in the future, the Baptist Church, because of their affiliation with Eric Rudolph or some of these other people that have taken these violent means to stop abortion. I know we're just using that one thing. Maybe we all get painted with the same brush uh, fifty to a hundred years from now. Well, I mean, that's that's not an idea unique to me. That's not something I came up with. That's a, something I heard on Dan Carlin a while back. After I believe it was after the San Bernardino shooting, he did an episode of Common Sense where he talked about, um, you know, how the dog will rip itself apart trying to get at the fleas and and really all it does is end up hurting itself. And how you know there were calls to limit. Uh, the practice of Islam in the United States and how that is a really, really dangerous precedent because as we know, things like 
Oh, uh, Rich, what is it? The law that they passed that allowed them to prosecute the mob? RICO, the racketeering influence and corruption orders, Mm -hmm. was only was put in place specifically to capture mob members that they couldn't get anything else on. And they said, this is all we're going to use it for. And now it's used for everything all over the place. And if we, you know, his contention was if we pass the law that says in this case, we have the right to suppress a certain religion. You know, 10 years down the road, there's a big spate of abortion clinic bombings, and whoever's in the White House is not particularly religious. Well, now you're now that finger's potentially pointed back at you, and that law is used to suppress your own religion. Um, it's a really fascinating episode, and something I man, I strongly encourage every listener to go listen to Dan Carlin's Common Sense. It's a, it's a political podcast, but it's as middle of the road as you can get. Basically, he calls everybody out on on their shenanigans, so uh, you should definitely check that out. Um, man, I feel like I had something else on that, but uh, uh, I, I guess we probably move on from the ideology here a little bit. Yeah, so all this stuff's going to be in the show notes, right, as far as where they need to go uh, to get... Uh the VPN that you recommend. I mean, all of it's going to be there for the listener. All of it's going to be there for the listener. And I'm going to go you one better. So we will have links to all the stuff we talked about in the show note. I'll have some sort of diagram that kind of shows you how your internet traffic works with a VPN and without a VPN. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write tutorials on installing and setting up private internet access on all of your different devices. I'm going to explain what all the settings mean I don't know if I'm going to do that in one big article or if I'm going to have four or five separate articles. Uh, Actually, the one thing I might have a problem with is an Android phone because I don't have an Android phone. But I want to make sure there's a tutorial out there for the listener to understand how to actually go and do this. And I want to make clear to the listener as well that if you click that link to private internet access through our show notes, we do get a couple of bucks for that. And that helps us support the show. We're trying to be completely transparent about that, not trying to be shady, not trying to beat around the bush. Um, That, you know, again, that doesn't go in your permanent record with private internet access. They just registered. Yes, someone signed up for a one-year subscription through this. Justin and Rich get their little little kickback. but yeah, every bit of the stuff will be in the show notes, man. Okay, so some of it, if you're the listener right now, and some of it sounds fuzzy as you're uh, doing bicep curls for the 100th time this week or driving down the road, uh, that's okay. Check out the show notes at acrossthepeak.com, and it'll be crystal clear. Yeah, most definitely, man. Uh, should we go ahead and go into the book of the week, Rich? Yeah, brother, go ahead. All right, I'm going to, dude... This is, this is dirty, man. I'm going to do a shameless self-promotion this week and say the book of the week is a book called ComSec, Off-the-Grid Communication Strategies for Privacy Enthusiasts, Journalists, Politicians, Crooks, and the Average Joe. And this is by me and my co-author, Drew. And this primarily focuses on cell phone stuff, how to go to the nth degree with security for your mobile phone. But it explains a lot of stuff. We, we feel that we really did a good job of breaking this down for the layman. It also explains VPNs in great detail. So far, we have four reviews. Every single one of them are five-star reviews. Um, we, we really put a lot of time and effort into this, and it's, uh, it's a pretty fantastic book, I think. I am definitely going to have to check that out. And I've heard Drew on your other podcast, uh, very knowledgeable guy. Is he a police officer? He is a full-time police officer, yes. And we will uh, we'll have him on this show at some point, I'm sure. 
Yeah, good dude, man. So, I, And that book's only been out, what, a couple months now? Yeah, it came out in July. So yeah, it hasn't been out all that long. Good, good deal, man. I will definitely check it out. So um, check out the show notes at acrossthepeak.com. Justin's going to have those um, diagrams so you understand exactly where those uh, tax services are. You're going to be able to understand what a virtual private network is and why you need one. And you're going to have a place to go and get one. And don't forget to check out the book, ComSec. And with all that being said, Justin, if you don't have anything else, my friend, do you want to lead us out? All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Across the Peak. Again, we've hit this pretty hard in this episode, but show notes will be available at acrossthepeak.com. If there's one favor we could ask of you, it would be please share the show with somebody that needs it. That really, really helps us out. Until next week, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.